out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, Jim. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade. Um, And we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the Rain Parade, all the way from L.A., who are part of the Paisley underground scene that we loved so much back in the day. Um, And a few weeks ago, I was in L.A., as you do, um, to speak to Matt Pucci and uh, to find out more about everything you ever needed to know about the band and his musical development and world. And this, after a few minutes of casual chat, is me asking Matt about those early musical influences. And this was his response. Take it away, Matt. I had older brothers and they had all of the 60s music and I was well steeped in that. Um, And they also, when I was 14 years old, they started taking me to concerts. And that was fantastic. Uh, my parents obviously hadn't thought it through completely or they never would have let us do it. Yes. That is some bizarre phenomenon associated with my computer there that I cannot explain. It will start making noise, like chirping. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so they took me to see the birds in December of 1980, uh, 1972 in Chicago. And that kind of just, that was it for me. I mean, I just couldn't believe how cool that was yes and relatively the next year i think uh, i was oh jesus okay sorry uh the next year i was uh out jesus that is fantastic i i need to figure out what that is but uh anyway uh so you know what i'm gonna do i think if that does it again i'll pull the mouse out i think that's what's doing it. but anyway <laughs> um <clears throat> Their friend with whom we were staying had a guitar and uh, seemed to recall watching Midnight Special. This is probably in somewhere in early 1973, seeing Almond Brothers, Roxy Music and all this crazy stuff. And there was this guitar there and I'm like, okay, this is it. So I stayed up all night and I tried to learn how to play it. Um, the Bandit ended up getting one later. Um, and uh, I played acoustic guitar throughout high school. And then when I went to college, I, uh, 1975, I met some people like uh, David Roback and John Thoman, who played with for years, both. Uh, and uh, I met them at that school, a couple other people as well that are dear friends. And obviously the whole New York scene in the mid seventies happened and we were young and impressionable. Yeah. Kind of went straight from hippie to punk with bypassing disco or glam or any of that stuff. Um, and then only got back into that music later. Uh, as uh, well, you know how that works. You see something contemporary, you get excited about it, you research it and you find out what they liked and you go back and you learn more about it, fill in the gaps and stuff like that. So the, the more underground music from those times I wasn't that familiar with. I mean, my brothers didn't have like Stooges records or uh, any of that kind of thing, or MC5. It was more standard CSNY, Dead, Doors, uh, Stones, Beatles, all that stuff. Um, that's fantastic. I really have to figure out what that is. Um, so, uh, then obviously when when punk hit, we really, uh, we really became enamored with 
the idea. Uh, and then we, we me, meaning myself and David Roback, who was my roommate in college at that time, David Roback, uh, his brother is Stephen Roback, who I play with today, and also John Thoman, who was at Carleton then, and uh, Carleton College is a small school in, uh, outside of Minneapolis where I met these people. And uh, we decided that we, we just had to do that. Um, and uh, just began trying to learn how to become musicians. Um, at first, um, <laughs> weren't very good at it, but uh, had, had discussed the idea of being in a band and formed one and did a bunch of covers. Uh, we thought we were punk, but, uh, and then over the next couple of years, talking back and forth until mm, almost 40 years ago exactly, I moved to Los Angeles to form a rock band with mm. David Roback. Met his brother shortly thereafter, and we were off and running. Yes. So we all, I That's mean, my deal. <laughs> yes. So, so that was, but you were obviously quite committed because, because um, without giving too much away, but I mean, you know, I was born in the mid 60s. So I'm now in my mid 50s. And I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he introduced me to that world that was prog rock with great enthusiasm in the 70s. And I, I suppose I grew up in that early 70s lit, watching something called Top of the Pops, and it was all oh, sure. It was glam, you know, we loved the sweet and Gary Glitter and Slade and T-Rex. But it was kind of the, the, the moment that I think I saw David Bowie doing Space Oddity. Thankfully, that was my first single and first album was Changes One. So that was quite That's a good one. It's, it's such a lucky one. It could have been so many other ones. Um, so in the early 80s, as, as you sort of progressed into, and that was when the band started to form, in the UK, there was a lot of unemployment at the time. Thatcher got in in 79. You know, there was like waves of unemployment. We'd had the three-day week. Things weren't looking good. So a lot of kids had just kind of had that punk experience or might have been just too young at the time. I was way too young. Um, and so being unemployed and then being in a band was like, well, we might as well do something while we're sort of unemployed. And as he said, no future. So there was there was a lot of those indie bands formed in that that period in, in every city because it was kind of quite a grim period. So what was it like in America? Because, I mean, you know, things are were changing, but obviously each decade doesn't really get a shape until we're, 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 we're into that decade, if you see what I mean. So Yeah, they tend to start later. I mean, <laughs> and the then, 60s kind of started when Kennedy was assassinated, and I guess the 70s, not sure when they started <laughs> exactly, but, but anyway, um, it is different in the US and the UK. There, uh, the whole response to the mid-70s New York scene in, uh, England was dramatically different than in other places. I mean, uh, I never viewed, yeah, they called it punk coming out of New York. Uh, but that's, when I think of punk, I think of like the Clash and the Sex Pistols, even though that's not historically af accurate, but that was much more of a social consciousness thing. The New York scene was just musicians who were writing their own material, and they had bands and they played it in the same place this crappy which now is kind of chic the bowery uh, if you can imagine uh, there are like tony restaurants there and everything uh when it used to be just skid row uh but those those groups um were really only associated by proximity and um desire to write their own music i don't think they really have anything to do with each other I mean, none of them sound even remotely like each other I mean, you could say the clash and the sex pistols are kind of close but uh i mean the ramones don't sound like blondie blondie doesn't sound like television television doesn't sound like patty smith 
Eddie Smith doesn't sound like the talking heads. Um, yes. I, I sort of feel that, that Los Angeles was more like that in the early 80s than like England when it was uh, such a cultural and social thing. This was just yeah. more, I think, pure music and uh, I'm not saying it's better. Uh, I just, it just is. I don't, <clears throat> the early 80s in Los Angeles, it seemed like um, that was already over that the original New York inspiration. And then of course, heading across the pond and then bouncing back, like stuff has gone back and forth across the ocean for decades. Um, and then when it came back, and, and at least in Los Angeles, and I can't speak for myself because I don't consider myself an LA punk of any way. Uh, I moved there in, geez, like right around now, 1981, in April of 81. And with the intent to write new material with my um, former college roommate, David Groback, we were gonna form this band. We had every intention of doing that. We didn't know what it was gonna sound like, but by the time I got there, it seemed like the atmospherics of music had left the equation. Uh, Los Angeles had become sort of fascist in a way in terms of the music scene. I mean, I wasn't there, but in the 70s, it was a much more innocent thing. And there was more of a flow between glam and rock and a lot of weirdos and who weren't, you know, who weren't judged. A lot of, um, you know, open and uh, newer, or at least not newer, but at least more acceptable. What am I trying to say? Yeah, just, you know, uh, the idea of the, the gender bending and people being gay or straight or whatever that it was, it was just much more accepted and then and then later it became less sweet uh and kind of i don't know if this is like the suburban jocks or whatever who started taking over the la scene and then it became just like loud and fast and sweaty and no subtlety and i went into that and uh neither was my that wasn't what we were trying to do um so it seemed like there was an opening for a return to atmospheric music. I mean, I remember they referred to something called psychedelic music in like 1980 out of England. They were talking about U2 and Teardrop Explodes and Echo and stuff like that. Um, I wasn't super into those groups, but I found that interesting. Um, it was kind of like noticed, oh wow, there's something else going on. So, um, yes. and then what in Los Angeles coming out and then seeing all these people doing original music that, uh, was a little more 60s inspired or at least more melodically inspired. Um, yeah. Well, I suppose because because I mean, you were on the scene a little bit earlier, you know, like when I when I talk about the great indie period of the 80s in a very sweeping way. And it's not kind of like a great um, watertight theory, but it's quite a, it's my best one. Yeah. You know, I put indie down that that kind of jangly sound between the years of 83 to 87, which were basically the, the years of the Smiths, because you had that sort of punk period, you know, like you mentioned the, the Clash and the Sex Pistols and then the Buzzcocks, and then you had all those other bands that jump on a bandwagon, which are a bit embarrassing. That's when the scene goes. And then you had that post-punk period where you had, you know, like um, the Gang of Four and Peel and, uh, and that kind of slightly spiky sound, Wire was another band. And then you had a little bit of a crossover those early years of Simple Minds, U2, and and then suddenly an echo in the bunny men and then you know that those those you know two of those bands go on to be juggernauts and they an echo slightly loses it but then you, when the smiths appeared there was definitely like okay that's this is this is something this isn't just kind of little quirky independent music this is kind of like 
they're starting to sell big, you know, big numbers really, and have this big influence. So, so you're, you know, with 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 the band that you're in, you were sort of kind of just before that kind of explosion. Though the first album came out in '83, didn't it? That is correct. Um, we we didn't even play for the first year. Uh, we played in May of '82, but the previous was 13 months. We didn't play for anybody. We learned how to write music. So went through a lot of stuff. And then then we, we re- released a single in 82 before we even played, I think. Uh, and then the next year that album came out. So uh, so I guess we were doing it. Um, I'm not sure when it got to the UK. There was a magazine called Bucket Full of Brains. That was the one that we first saw that had noticed us. And it was very exciting. Yes. For young so- people who had not had anyone pay attention to them yet. And one of your producers on that first album, and I might, might have this completely wrong, Ethan James, he, mm-hmm. was he in a band called Jane Bond and the Undercover Men? Was that him? Indeed he was. He was also in Blue Cheer. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those bands, because in this country, without jumping around the narrative too much, but... Um, I'm about to jump around the narrative, aren't I? But we had the gatekeepers. Back in those days, you had certain gatekeepers, which now it's like a bit, you know, it's like it's, the floodgates are open. But then, you know, we had the NME, the Melody Maker, uh, Record Mirror Sounds, and then we had, you know, various DJs on daytime, which were just like, you know, the personality. But then we had John Peel, who was this kind of like, played this kind of alternative stuff. And it could be anything from Bulgarian folk to... Um, you know, hip hop to African music, and obviously a lot of indie bands as well. So he, so he played uh, Jane Bond on the Undercover Men, and it was one of those like, oh my god, this is this is like a JFK moment. This is like amazing record, and and I think he was one of the members, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I think I think it was his band. Um, I honestly don't remember them super well. I remember Ethan. Um, he had a little studio called Radio Tokyo, which was in Venice, which I learned many years later. My wife had actually lived in before he bought it. How weird is that? That is weird. So, um, <laughs> so yes, where I was sitting and recording sitar some months later, uh, that's where she lived in her bedroom there. Um, and so, so Ethan was, uh, you know, he was a little older and he knew engineering and. He did yeah. our first single, and then he came with us to a slightly larger place, a 16-track studio, which name escapes me at this moment. Is that Contour Studios? Yeah, 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 that's it. That's with right. a guy named Am- Amrit. I don't know whatever happened to him, um, and then we recorded there. Um, yes, so can you remember much? Did you have all the material all rehearsed, ready to go? Yeah, we were very prepared. Um, by the time we got to our LP, the first one, we had recorded at least half of that stuff before. Uh, we had done a single. Um, there's a song on the B side of the single is identical on the record. That's called Kaleidoscope. Uh, there were a few songs that we recorded for a, a compilation called Wharf Rat Tales. Uh, we had done a single. So yeah, about half of them had already been recorded. And uh, we, I mean, we knew what we were doing. We were very careful. We were very methodical. We arranged things fairly carefully, not to the point where, you know, the studio, you have to leave a little bit open for, for chance for things yes. that can happen and let them happen. 
Uh, so that that did a little bit more. Got better at that later, but for this first one, we were really very, um, very well rehearsed and prepared. So it yes. wasn't like, like winged it. And we also, know. and you yeah, played but, sitar, which is, you know, the George Harrison period. Of course. Did you manage to, um, yeah, did that come together quite easily, doing, you know, being able to play a sitar? Well, I had a friend in college who had one and she let me play it. Um, and I thought they were cool. I mean, I certainly don't claim to know how to play it right. Uh, but we were going to use one. I mean, we were going to, you know, we were going to use a damn sitar. We were going to do it. So <laughs> when I saw the song that Stephen had written, uh, which was a little more folky when he presented it to us, but then we started working on it and David came up with this crazy fuzz guitar and we got a nice spacey drum beat to it. And it's like, hey man, sitar. So yes. I don't even remember where I got it, but, uh, but yes, I did play that and that was a blast. Amazing. And were you, because I always remember hearing um, the drummer from Joy Division, Stephen, I can't remember his surname, but he, he remember, I remember him talking about when they, when they sort of heard back, you know, the sort of first recordings of Joy Division by Martin Hannett. They were quite disappointed. They thought, oh, actually, that's, that's not what we want at all. But then obviously the sound of Joy Division becomes so iconic. They obviously grew to love it. I mean, did you enjoy, you know, when you sort of were in the studio, what being able to capture what you wanted and getting the sound that you were looking for? We uh, kind of took to it like ducks to water. We, I always felt that we were better at that than live. I mean, and live is something you do and it's got even more important now because uh, you can't make any money off of recordings. But yes. uh, that's what I think we do did best and do best. Uh, so it seemed very natural. And we've, uh, we've been lucky to work with, pretty lucky. Our track record with working with other uh, engineers and producers has been pretty good. Not every uh, collaboration was ideal, but uh, at least now, millions of years later, we've reestablished connection with our producer from our second, from our EP, and who also did the Live in Japan EP. Uh, he just, uh, Jim Hill, who'd worked with Wall of Voodoo, and he, uh, he's kind of in the band now. I mean, we don't do anything without him. The most recent recordings that we did with uh, the Bangles and the Three O'Clock and the Dream Syndicate, that he worked on those with us as well. Yes. So we got the team back and working. Yes, which must now that we're old and nobody cares, so but <laughs> we're doing it anyway. Well, I know this is quite interesting because what I discovered, you know, like I was saying, there was the the gatekeepers of that period, and and what what in the UK especially you mean the tastemakers? Is yeah, I suppose yeah. people that you could, you know, if you kind of managed to get a review in the NME, which is you know, like at the time was just a a weekly paper, but they had a kind of circulation of something like 100,000 or John Peel. And people who listened to John Peel, like myself, I mean, you never thought anybody, you didn't know anybody at school who listened to it. You know, you felt a bit like you were curious about this music because one's, you know, has the, an unfortunate obsession, but then didn't know many other people. But then you realized there were like, you know, people in every little town who would listen to it. And so there were like a lot of these kind of indie nights or, club night well not club nights but you know indie nights where you'd have three bands for three pound playing at the art center here or in bristol or manchester or glasgow you know on a monday tonight or tuesday wednesday night so you know a play on the john peel show would then sort of probably get you an audience around the country with 200 people that weren't like your friends and family or anybody else you'd emotionally blackmail to see so it kind of created this kind of organic kind of network 
which at the time you take for granted, but then you look back and you think, oh, that was brilliant, e even though it was all very sort of, it came together in a slightly, like I said, organic way. Did you have a, a similar scene like that in America? But Because I know America's so big. It's, it, you know, obviously there are differences and similarities in this England. It, I mean, the thing about England that simply does not happen in America is if you crack through, you're, you're good for life. Like I, I got a buddy named Ian McNabb who was in a band called High School Wars. Yeah. Love that guy. He's an awesome guy. He's a freaking rock star and he has been since forever. Um, because in England, when that happens, once it happens, you're in. That is absolutely not true in the United States. It is. There are 10 Englands musically <laughs> inside of the United States. There's LA, there's Nashville, there's, there's San Francisco, uh, there's New York, uh, there's Memphis, you know, it just, uh, yeah, so uh, I think the Peel analog in America would be the college radio stations. Right. Yeah. There. What was true about the '80s is that is no longer true. Is that there was there was this network, an organic network that you described uh, of the um, of, of, well bands. Obviously, you got to have bands. Um, but also college radio stations, independent record labels, and uh, these little venues all over the place. I mean, and behind every one of those is a single person. Like if you played in Rochester, New York, that's because of Pat Thomas. If you played in Jackson, Mississippi, that was because of Tim Lee. Right. Um, so there's these little stops along the way uh, where you, uh, where there were kids who, you could do it. You could actually be a kid and like get a club to book somebody and no one's going to make a lot of money, but it was sustainable. And there would be a college radio station. Usually uh, who, you wouldn't get paid for that, but at least they would expose you. Yes. Now that's been completely subsumed into corporate music. They have their own quote, independent music uh, division. And then it's like, you know, what is some poor slob at, you know, frontier records or, down there or any number of independent labels make anything up what are they going to do when the anr guy calls hey i have two dozen tickets for jane's addictions and a bunch of t-shirts man we're coming to town and it's like it, it then it just got crushed and frankly i don't know who these bands are i mean who's a good band from england now i don't even know i mean is there any rock band from england that i should be listening to i, I admit i i'm I'm sure there is. If I looked hard, there's good music everywhere. And I don't mean to say that there isn't, but I mean, I guess Oasis was the last one and they weren't even that good. But uh, Yes. Well, I, I think it is, it, know. it is difficult because I have to admit, you know, I did rely on John Peel. So it was mm -hmm. like I went to him and, you know, he, I knew that he would be sort of every day, every hour sort of searching for these kind of records that play on his show, which, you know, he, you know, he was very good at. So now we, we have someone called, six music that I know a lot of people go on about but then they they stick to a playlist and that playlist has been put together by probably committees and you kind of think well I'll just kind of I can now just look at the website and see what records you're playing and, and you know and and they always have their favorites and you just know that if they if that person's always going to get played because they like that person for various reasons where John Peel you know he after his experience with people like T-Rex Mark Boland he decided not to get near any artists again you know. <laughs> and he didn't he didn't you know because he had that problem where you know mark said you know i've got my new single do you want to listen to it and it's like not really 
and it was like our friendship is now over you know it was kind of that slightly simplified but it was that kind of no you know it's it, you know I loved you in the 60s with that stuff quite like your early 70s but this is now this isn't kind of happening Mark and you know it's like but you're going to play my single and it's like no I know we're supposed to be friends but it's kind of difficult you know it's like integrity oh really it's super late t-rex that i probably haven't even heard i mean yes well if you if i think if you get to 74 75 and listen to the last couple of albums probably you think yeah (laughs) it ain't slider is it it's not gonna be you know it's not gonna be you know when my people were you know i don't know i can't remember the title when my people had stars in their hair that one you know you know you know because he had that very peculiar folk stuff and reading poetry which was of its time in the 60s on John Peel's kind of perfume garden somewhere on a ship in the North Sea. You know, it was all that kind of pirate radio stuff. Um, so look, the other thing is most bands have a five-year narrative. We love the five-year narrative. They get together, they're young, they're taking drugs, you know, they're unemployed <laughs> and they're having a good time. They get that first single, then, uh, you know, John Peel plays it, say, then they get a John Peel session, they go to Maida Vale, they have a top producer, you know, they go, wow, the first album, they get some gigs around the countryside, you know, they get in their little beaten up band. They almost have a tour, you know, because up to then, you know, someone would phone and say do you want to come up to Manchester I go yep we'll come to Manchester we'll come back from Manchester we'll go to you know that wasn't coordinated you know it was very sort of 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 its moment but they didn't have day jobs and then you know the first success comes with the first album things are good then the second album is tricky now in the UK there was another thing that happened if anybody ever toured America you know every band I've ever taught and spoke to have said we went to America and we came back and we broke up. So I didn't realize that that broke like most people's spirit, really. So, yeah, the second album. So you got to the second album, didn't you? Oh, well, we uh, we put our first record out. Then we, then we uh, David Robeck left the band and uh, he went off to do Clay Allison. And then we did an EP, which I still feel is our best work. So that was our second one. Then we went off to Japan and did another album there live and did one more studio record. And that was the one where I don't think the producer was the right person. Um, and uh, I like those songs. Uh, I don't think the production is as spooky as right. some of the other ones. So, but, uh, so that's why, uh, I don't know. How many, that's four records, I guess. With a live one, I don't even know if that counts. Uh, there's some original material on there live. Uh, that never got recorded, which is a little weird. I don't know anybody else who's ever done that except for like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah. Who I like. Uh, so yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess, I mean, five years is about how long we lasted. Um, maybe a little longer than that. Um, Did you then, feel, because because in that period, you know, when you were breaking up, that was kind of like 86. <laughs> going back to like I say you know it was kind of almost the height of the indie pop world because the other thing that happened apart from you know that finished most bands off in the in the 80s and this is probably the same with a lot of decades ago I'm an old person so I don't really understand what is happening now but the the music scene changed in that latter part so you had ecstasy came in which kind of created that dance scene so then unless those 80s bands were happy to go right we and a few did they got into the rave scene so you had like primal scream the stone roses the soup dragons were were the classic but most of the other bands all went 
actually we're, we're not we're, <laughs> we're not going to do that we're not going to be able to take ecstasy and become part of the rave culture so we're going to call it a day so you had all those other bands like the wolf hands and yeah yeah no and the june brides just said you know this isn't we're not we've done five years we've kind of we've made no money we hate each other if we went to america that was the end of us and now the music papers want dance music and then there's grunge and then you know so so yeah so that that kind of happened but but so when you were breaking up it was almost like a good period for for indie music and and your sound yeah um we've <laughs> kind of feel that we were always too late or too early uh it's listening to some of that i mean it's not like i sit and listen to it but i mean i know it in its context and it does seem like it could be as easily recorded in the 90s as in the 80s or the 60s or even now. I mean, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is it stands up, and I'm proud of that. Uh, the funny thing is, I'm going to, for us, it was the reverse. Going to England broke us up. So I guess. Um, <laughs> but it hadn't run its natural course, also. Um, we weren't as prepared for our last record as we were for the previous ones, and that showed. And, uh, you know, it's. Uh, it, it had run its course. And then, so Steven started going off on this Viva Saturn thing, which is a great band. Um, and I, I worked with that. I went back to school, you know, moved on into, uh, got my science career going again. Uh, and then, but it slowly put out albums. Uh, and then in about 2012, all, a number of different things happened that got us back together. Yes. Uh, which was a little weird. It started out with a car accident. Um, a, uh, a good friend of ours from Jackson, Mississippi, Bobby Sutliff, who was in a band called the Windbreakers. He was in a serious car accident. And, I mean, man, he barely made it. He was in ICU for six weeks. Uh, and his songwriting, um, not partner, his previous musical partner, Tim Lee, who's a friend of mine, I made a record with him too. And he's like, well, we should do some shows. We should, I'm like, okay, let's do an album first. So we did uh, a bunch of, Bobby songs were cover, kind of got the thing rolling. And then another thing happened, my buddy Steven Roback moved back to the Bay Area. And uh, so I think he sings on that song just a little bit, but um, we started thinking, well, geez, you know, maybe we should play. And then there was a benefit in Atlanta and they'd been bugging us to do it because Rain Play, Parade want to come play. And we're like, yeah, right. So we did. Uh, and uh, we've been playing on and off since then. Obviously, it's not like it was. Uh, uh, a lot older, obviously. I don't feel that people expect 60-year-olds to like contribute to the future of music in any like huge way, but we do enjoy writing music. We think we're pretty good at it. We have a whole albums worth of stuff we're going to record, and then... Guys like you will tell us whether that was smart. Yes. Well, it's interesting because the one thing I've noticed um, in life, I suppose, in doing this is that there's a passing of time. And obviously you've already you know, done that reforming a few years ago. But then there's always those kind of like 20 or 30 years, 25 to 30 years. There seems to be a period of time where a lot of the music of that period, you know, got made. And it was, like, oh, that's very nice. We'll all move on. And now a lot of people are sort of going back going, not just a nostalgic, I want to be 18 year old game, but listening going, God, this is a really good one. Or in case of like with me, sometimes go, actually, this is a band I didn't catch the first time because obviously in those days, kind of, you might have heard, you know, read somewhere that this album 
help them had come out. But you don't always got, you never always had the chance to listen to it. So it sort of went, oh, well, that one's gone. Oh, that one's gone. Oh, I'll get that one. And then you go back and think, actually, this is, you know, I'm not just trying to relive the past, but this is actually sounds good. And, and there's a re record label in the UK called Cherry Red Records, who've just kind of yeah, moved I, up yes, all these little all these like little labels and gone, oh, you know, if we put nice little collections and compilations and best of some nice sleeve notes, you never know, people might like it. And you think, actually, this is really good. And that was a flexi that I, I kind of heard of, but I didn't, you know, John Peel might've played it, but I didn't actually, I only heard it that once. And then you get a chance. So I realized that there is a sense of kind of going back and I suppose two things, there's archiving it and then also saying, actually, this is better than I imagined, you know, and I think that's probably, you know, I wondered if you have that experience when you listen to some of it thinking, we were young kids just making it up, but actually there was something quite special in there. For me, the biggest surprise was, uh, you know, we all bitch about social media and, and that kind of thing, with good reason. It's, I'm not sure whether it's done more harm than good, but on the good side, it was a real surprise for me well, 10 years ago or so to learn that there were people who were in these kinds of bands later um, in the 90s, like bands like Beachwood Sparks or, uh, well, meeting the next generation of people who really liked this kind of music. There's bands like Asteroid 4, Asteroid Number 4, or uh, like I said, Beachwood Sparks, or these guys who were maybe 10 years younger who really dug that stuff. Um, that was... Uh, that was a surprise for me. And then, of course, as you get older, you know, when you're young and you're trying to start your own thing, it's really important to uh, to know what you don't want to do. I mean, we knew that we were not going to play blues licks. I mean, we love Chuck Berry, but we are not doing that. Um, and then as you get older, you just you're a little bit more open and accepting of other things. You're not as. Uh, it, it, it's not you're, you're not because you're not as uh, viscerally involved, you can be a little bit, have a little bit more perspective. Um, that's, even, that's even true with older bands. It's like, <laughs> I listened to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath now more than I ever did as a kid. I hated those bands because of the people who liked them. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, there's, there's good stuff everywhere. And, even, and now, especially, there's all sorts of good music. Yes. Well, I, you I mean, look for it. It's harder it's, to find, but, you gotta, but, but it's there. It is there. And I thought also, I don't know if you came across this, but this guy, um neil taylor he was the one who um neil taylor. neil taylor well he was one of the three people in the nme who put that cassette together but he did a chapter i just suddenly realized talking to you he did a chapter on on the the psychedelic pass uh, paisley sound and oh was, sweet when you say c86 i suppose oh yes ha. i certainly know that picture um yes. You, you mean like Happy Mondays and that kind of thing? Is that what you No, C it's more... Oh, the C86, I suppose it's... Is it referred to 1986? I presume that it does. It is, it is kind of the sound. So it's more a, a lot of it, because the Happy Mondays early sound was much more... It was much more indie, and then they took the drugs, and then it was kind of a little bit more dance, and they got... And that's probably not, not um, 90 more than 86 right so so the 80s sounds were these kind of like the wedding present if you think of the wedding present the mighty lemon drops um the june brides those you know, kind of i've heard all those bands but i could not tell you a yes. single song sorry but then you know i realized that sort of um so yeah so now people are now writing chapters about that that scene so i think it kind of helps 
to kind of put it back into some sort of cultural context and sort of realize actually there were these bands that sort of did some amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, that's that's very true. I think that um, it just depends on the hype machine of the moment, you know? I mean, who knows why people are successful or not? I mean, I mean, I, I know bands, I, I can't understand why they're not more successful. Um, that no one sort of uh, beats me. It's a lot yeah. of it's luck. Well, uh, I, I spoke to um, the guy who I can't remember his name, Doctors of Madness from the 70s, who, who was kind of like there in the punk scene, but in 1975, punk hadn't quite happened. He said, like, two years later, we would have been so big. But actually, all those punk bands, like, you know, the Sex Pistols, all those members came to our gigs and got a lot of our, got a lot. You mean like, you know, like Dr. Feelgood and that kind of stuff? Yes. Pub rock? So so, Those guys are amazing. I, I love that stuff. Uh, so yeah. So and Doctors of Madness, Richard Strange. That's the man who's still who's still now still performing. But he said, you know, we were just like two years too early, and I was twenty five. I was too old. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> Timing's everything. And so yeah. So coming back to the current day, as you said, you've got new material that you're hoping to put out. And sure. Uh, we well. We recently were part of this uh, a very bizarre compilation. I've never heard anybody else doing it, so I like the project for that reason. There's four bands, the Dream Syndicate, the Rain Parade, uh, the Three O'Clock, and the Bangles, and we each did a song of the others. And so it's a double album, and you get to play, like if you play the Rain Parade side, you hear the Dream Syndicate, the Bangles, and Three O'Clock. If you play the Bangles side, you hear the Dream Syndicate, the Rain Parade. Right. Right. It, it really, it did pretty well too. And we, we played about, and that was really fun. That's kind of over, but the machine's up and running. So uh, I've been writing and we have uh, at least an album's worth of stuff. We'll probably, <laughs> we had this particular global health situation not emerge. We may have been in the studio by now, but uh, obviously we can't do that. Although today my, um, Members of Rain Parade will be coming to my backyard <laughs> and we'll be playing on the back porch with appropriate social distancing and, and uh, safety protocols, but we're going to play a little bit. Yes. I think there's three of it. You can't really get together with a band. That's just, that's just too stupid. Uh, and uh, we'll see what happens. Very interesting times. Yeah. And do you feel, because the other thing that's happened is that um, I've noticed in the UK, Quite a lot of bands are still doing music of some de description and and actually sort of at the time they probably didn't feel part of a scene but then you know as years and decades go on they realize that there is kind of a bit of a, a vibe between them do you sort of feel that you know we'd like fake bands like the dream syndicate and the bang the bangles and the the, the three o'clock uh, do you feel that there's quite a nice vibe amongst you that a you've done this stuff and you're still surviving and so, you know like yeah, I mean, things generally just fall apart. <laughs> that is the nature of the universe. They don't often get back together and reform. That doesn't happen. So it was very nice to see these people who I all like. Some, you know, there's myth and not myth, that's not the right word. There are like prevailing storylines, and then there's reality, which is always more complicated. But, uh, I've been in touch with uh, Dan and Jack from 
green on red over the last 35 years. They're both really good friends. See Steve Wynn, he's a good buddy. Uh, don't see Vicky and Sue that often, but when I do, uh, Happy to, and Debbie, uh, she doesn't even live in California any longer, but it was really good to see these people, uh, Michael and Lewis and Danny Benera. But also there's way more bands, the guys in Long Riders, uh, the, the band The Last, uh, Leaving Trains. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but uh, Green on Red, obviously, who doesn't want to be part of this thing, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys, you don't get out of it. Um, but it, it wasn't any like club. It really is very, to me, Los Angeles in 1981, two, well, two three, four, uh, was a lot closer to New York in 75 in the sense that there were a lot of original songwriters with different kinds of bands, but they didn't really have anything to do with one another. I, I mean, yeah, the early Green on Red was kind of psychedelic with the organy and droney guitar and some of the Dream Syndicate is, but Dream Syndicate really is a punk band with guitar solos. They play long punk songs. Uh, they are more punk to me. Uh, Bangles are, Jesus, they're like the best cover band in the world. I mean, they do, they're amazing. Uh, I love their songs too. Three O'Clock is something different. I mean, they're all different. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Um, I think your question is, was it nice to see the people in it? it, it yes, it, yes, it really was. Uh, it was genuinely, not phony. It was really sweet to see everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, we've all, you know, we've all, we've had deaths in our bands and we've, uh, you know, we've been through a lot and it doesn't always come back like that. You know, it just doesn't. So that was cool. That really yes. was cool. I, I doubt it. It'll happen again. Uh, we, we did just recently play a show with the dream syndicate. I mean, I could see that happening again sometime. Yeah. Maybe if we can get somebody to, you know, put out a record and we might get over there next year. That, that would be, be magic. That would be. I would love so to look, those guys over yeah. there. That seems like can make an event out of it as opposed to just a tour. It's just so difficult to tour. I mean, I have a day job, which is fine and I enjoy it. I'm not uh, I'm very lucky, but I can't ask people who don't have a lot of money to lose money to go play music. I, I can't do that. It's uh, sad, but that's the way it is. As yeah. much fun as it would be to go over there. Uh, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe uh, maybe someone wealthy will decide that they think that's cool. And we'll that figure would be it out. good. And what would, you, what would you say to an 18-year-old self starting out? You know, if, if someone could have just whispered something to you, you know, in that, that kind of very early period, you thought... Oh, be nicer to people. <laughs> that's what i would tell him i mean that's i'm not even that person anymore i'm not sure there's a single cell in my body that was around then although uh, i think your brain stays the same i'm not sure uh, i have to look that up but uh we, we aren't the same people we were then we're we're different human beings uh i yeah i'd tell that kid to be a little nicer to people be more considerate right yes but, that's probably true of everybody you know when, when you're young and struggling you're looking for something new you're probably less willing to uh, be open to other people. I, I don't think I was an incorrigible asshole, but I certainly could have been a lot nicer to, to different people. And, you know, I don't yeah. regret anything, but uh, hey, you know, we all work on it. Once we become perfect, then we die. So. <laughs> <laughs>
And that was me in conversation with the Rain Parade's Matt Pucci. If you want to find any more information about the band, there is various um, sites on social media that you can Google away to your heart's delight. Forever, in fact. Anyway, this is, uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. Keep it positive. Keep it pleasant. Life is too short. Um, yes, at C86. And you can find that on, I probably mentioned Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. And also all these shows have been archived and you can get those on iTunes, Spotify and also Podbean. So there. Anyway, this is David Eastall, C86 Show. Stay safe. Have a great week.